Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. The last two episodes, we've been talking about the unification of Norway under King Harald Fairhair and how his sons almost managed to break up the newly united kingdom again due to their sibling rivalry combined with a bit of fratricide. Last time, we focused on how Harald Fairhair's favorite son, Eric Bloodaxe, first succeeded his father only to be ousted by his half-brother Håkon the Good. Håkon, in turn, had to fight off invasions from Eric's sons, who wanted to reclaim their father's throne. But how come the Eriksons had the resources to send a fleet to Norway every few years? A fleet that was large enough to threaten their uncle, King Håkon? The answer is that the Eriksons didn't, but their maternal uncle did. He had done to Denmark what their paternal grandfather, Harald Fairhair, had done to Norway. He had conquered all of Denmark and unified it into one kingdom. Confusingly enough, his name was also Harald, just like their Norwegian grandfather. But luckily, his poor mouth hygiene had saddled him with a distinctive nickname that'll help us tell the two apart. Today, we'll see how Denmark was unified under one king, and why that king thought that he had the right to meddle in Norwegian affairs. Episode 23, Harold Bluetooth. If Frankish annals are anything to go by, there have been Danish kings at least since the early 9th century. This doesn't mean that these rulers were kings of Denmark, as in all the territory, merely kings in the region known as Denmark, the land of the Danes. There were no doubt several rival petty kings at any given moment in this region. At the very least, there seems to have been one center of power in Jutland and Funen to the west and another in Zealand and Scania to the east. It's even possible that the term Danes was originally reserved for the people from the Zealand-Scania area, whereas the people from Jutland were called Jutes as opposed to Danes. Scania and Halland, in present-day southern Sweden, were a part of Denmark from the very beginning, whereas Blekinge and Bornholm that would later fall under Danish control, were still not a part of what was considered Danish lands. The Danes also seem to have had political ambitions along the Frisian coast in the modern-day Netherlands. In the years between 834 and 837, Danish Vikings raided the important trading town of Dorstadt several times, and in 863 they destroyed it altogether. Whether this was part of an attempted conquest or not is hard to say, but Danish kings did employ similar tactics when expanding their control along the Baltic Sea coast and in Norway. In the middle of the 10th century, a man called Gorm the Old stepped out of the mist of legend and pushed aside the semi-mythical kings with Latinized names like Ungendus and Gotifridus found in the Frankish chronicles. Gorm the Old is the first Danish king we actually have any evidence about, even though there isn't much of it. His parentage, for instance, is unclear, but it's likely that his father was some Danish petty king or another. Gorm is supposed to have ruled from the year 936 or thereabout, and he died roughly a quarter of a century later. He's called Gorm the Old because he's seen as the original ancestor of the Danish monarchs, including the present queen, Margaret II. There is, however, no reason to believe that he was king of all of Denmark. More likely, he ruled only a part of it, like Jutland. But he was an important king and there are indications that he ruled over a relatively large kingdom. At the same time, the Danes, or at least some of them, paid taxes to the king of East Francia, Henry the Fowler. 
At least that's what the Frankish sources would have you believe. If it's true, that means that the Danes were under Frankish influence and pressure. That does make sense, and it would also explain some of the decisions made by Gorm's son, who we'll get to in just a moment. Gorm the Old was married to Thyra. We don't know much about her either, beyond the fact that she was held in high esteem by her family, and that she and Gorm had three sons, Knut, Toki, and Harald. They also had at least one daughter named Gunhild, who married Eric Bloodaxe, and this is the reason why Eric's family relocated to Denmark after he'd been ousted from Jorvik and killed. Gunhild just took her sons and moved back to her childhood home. Knut was King Gorm's favorite son and heir. He was tall, strong, and handsome. Apparently, he was loved by all because his nickname was Danaast, meaning Love of the Danes. Harold, on the other hand, was short and far less impressively built than his brother. Even though he was considered cunning and ambitious, he wasn't all that wise. But that didn't matter, since the beloved perfect Knut was the heir to the father's kingdom. Since this was the Viking Age, Gorm's and Thera's three sons would spend their summers raiding in foreign lands, and one summer in the 950s, the boys decided to plunder and pillage in Ireland. One evening, as they were besieging Dublin, the golden boy Knut was shot by an Irish defender and died. In another version of this event, the Danish Vikings became overconfident and went swimming in the sea without posting proper guards. Some locals took advantage of the opportunity and attacked, killing several of the defenseless bathers, including Knut. According to a much later tradition, when Thyra heard about her son's death, she didn't have the guts to tell her husband directly that his favorite son had been killed, because apparently Gorm the Old had a habit of reacting poorly to bad news and taking it out on the messenger. And for good reason, Thyra could probably not think of worse news than this. So instead of telling her irritable husband directly what had happened, she draped the windows in black fabric and dressed in sackcloth. When Gorm saw this, he asked his wife, What's happened? Is Knut dead? To this, his wife replied hurriedly, You said it, not me. Gorm the Old was so grief-stricken by this piece of news that he lost the will to live and died within a few days. So it's said that Thera cried the same tears over the graves of her husband and son. But on the other hand, at least her abusive husband accepted her oblique way of conveying the news, so she survived. That's a neat story, but probably just that, a story. Archaeological evidence suggests that the, this tradition is completely made up, and that Gorm the Old actually outlived his beloved wife. Just to clarify, there's no indication that he killed her for delivering the tragic news of their son's death, though. What is certain is that Knut did die, but it might not have been while raiding abroad at all. According to yet another tradition, it was actually Harold who killed his older brother when they were on their way to celebrate the midwinter Yule sacrifices with their parents. But I don't know about that. What I do know is that Harold would eventually have plenty of enemies who outlived him and who would be perfectly willing to make up stories of fratricide to slander his memory. Since Knut had died, however it happened, when Gorm the Old eventually kicked the bucket as well, he was succeeded by his second son, Harold. Actually, some sources, like the Roskilde Chronicle, claim that by the time of Gorm's death, Harald had been ruling as a co-regent with his aging father for several years already. Gorm the Old died around the year 960, and Harald was left to rule his kingdom alone. He would do so for a long time, a quarter of a century or so, 
During this time, he expanded his rule to cover all of Denmark, uniting the Jutland and Zealand regions. Harald Gormson established the United Denmark as Scandinavia's richest and most powerful kingdom, and there's no doubt that he was a capable and strong king, and he's personally responsible for the flourishing of Denmark, laying the groundwork for centuries of Danish political and economical dominance over large parts of Scandinavia and Northern Europe. Nonetheless, he's best known for his questionable dental hygiene. Today, if people have heard about him at all, they know him as Harald Bluetooth, a nickname most likely referencing a prominent, impossible-to-miss blackened tooth in the royal mouth. The reason he's called Bluetooth and not Blacktooth is probably because in Old Norse, the color blue was used to describe a spectrum of dark colors that we today wouldn't necessarily think of as blue. A similar phenomenon can be noted in the Odyssey, where Homer calls the sea wine dark. And even though this is a fascinating rabbit hole to go down, it's not the topic at hand, so let's just leave the color nomenclature of the ancient world and move on. In any case, it's more than likely that you wouldn't have called Harold by the nickname Bluetooth to his face anyway. For obvious reasons, he much preferred one he chose for himself, Harold the Good. But that far more generic sobriquet didn't stick. Beyond unifying Denmark, an early priority for Harold Bluetooth was securing his kingdom from the neighbors to the south, the East Frankish Kingdom in modern-day Germany. Much of his reign was characterized by tension with encroaching Germans, and Harald did what he could to handle this threat, both diplomatically and militarily. Not to give too much away, but this tension with the Germans is going to be a recurring theme throughout Danish history. One way to handle the Germans diplomatically was to approach them in terms of politics, culture and religion. Abandoning the old gods for Christ would definitely be a good way to reduce tension between Denmark and her strong and aggressive neighbor to the south, and Harold Bluetooth decided to do so early in his reign. According to one version of events, a missionary called Popo or something like that convinced Harold to convert to Christianity by putting on a glove made of smoldering hot iron without it damaging his hand in the slightest. This kind of macho miracles is something we've seen in other similar conversion stories, and I don't think it comes as a shock to anyone that there is a second version, which is more widely believed to reflect what actually happened. According to the second version, Otto I invaded Jutland and forced Harald Bluetooth to introduce Christianity in Denmark. After this defeat against the Germans, also Harald Bluetooth himself had to be baptized, together with his first wife and their son Sven. Otto graciously agreed to be the young lad's godfather and even let him be baptized as Sven Otto. Either way, Harold Bluetooth adopted a favorable attitude vis-a-vis -vis Christianity and allowed for Denmark to be divided into three dioceses, with a bishop each in Schleswig, Ribe and Aarhus. This was a clear departure from his father's policy since Gorm the Old had been an implacable enemy of the new religion. Another way to improve Denmark's position would be a suitable marriage alliance. Among Danish petty kings, marrying the daughters of various Slavic princes and chieftains who ruled the southern shore of the Baltic Sea had been common for a long time already. It was thought to be a good way to make useful financial, political and military connections on the continent. It made sense for Harald Bluetooth to do the same. So Harald married Tova, the daughter of a Slavic prince called Mstivoy. Of course, he already had a wife and son, Sven, remember? but he seems to have pushed them to the sidelines to make space for his new fancy bride from the south of the border. 
It made sense politically to do so, and it's basically risk-free. I mean, there's absolutely no way rejecting your son and his mother in favor of a new wife is going to come back and bite you, right? Harold Bluetooth didn't rely solely on diplomatic advances, marriage alliances and conversion to Christianity to secure Denmark's southern border. He also wanted to make sure that his kingdom was strong enough militarily to withstand a German invasion. As a part of that, he upgraded Danewerke, or sometimes called Danewerke, which is a fortified line along the southern border of Denmark. This defensive line had already existed for some time by Herod's ascension to the throne. According to the sagas, none other than his mother, Thyra, ordered the construction of Danewerke, but archaeological evidence shows us that the main structure was built in stages, starting already in the first half of the 8th century. But there are signs that there was a defensive position along this line already as early in the 7th century, roughly at the same time as the first steps toward urbanization were taken in Denmark. So by the time Thura became queen, Danneverke was already an old and well-established defensive position. But that doesn't rule out that she, and perhaps even her husband the king, added to it. Then the chronological analysis has shown that major construction work was added in the late 960s, which would coincide with the beginning of Harold Bluetooth's reign. During this time, Danneverke was about 30 kilometers long, stretching across the Schleswig Isthmus from around Hedeby on the Baltic Sea to the marshlands on the North Sea coast. The walls, consisting of trenches, earthen foundations and wooden palisades, varied in height between 3 and 6 meters. By all accounts, it was an impressive construction, a testament to the power and resources of the King of Denmark. Harold Bluetooth must have been mighty pleased. He apparently also felt mighty secure behind Danneverke, because after the death of Otto I in the year 973, Harold decided to attack his German neighbors, possibly in an attempt to break free from the German sphere of influence and to avenge the humiliating defeat less than a decade earlier when he'd been forced to accept Christianity by the victorious Otto. Whatever the reason for the invasion was, it exploded in Harald's face. The Danes even lost control of Danneverke, and the southern parts of the kingdom was occupied. So instead of breaking free from German influence, their looming shadow had just grown longer and darker. It seems to have been in response to this military fiasco that Harald Bluetooth initiated the construction of a series of circular forts spread throughout all of Denmark. Seven such forts, called Trelleborgs, have been found. Archaeologists are fairly certain that there are at least five of these that were erected during the reign of Harald Bluetooth. The forts are situated in Jutland, on Funen, and Zealand, and in Scania, ideal locations for anyone who wanted both control and defend as large a part of Denmark as possible. There might even have been additional forts in other places that we no longer know anything about. In fact, some archaeologists claim that there were Trelleborgs also in Scania, in the vicinity of present-day Helsingborg and Lund, two towns on the eastern shore of the Ursund Strait. The Trelleborgs were perfectly circular, and they had four gates evenly spaced out, dividing the walls into four equal parts. From the gates, straight roads laid, led to the center of the fort, forming a perfectly symmetrical cross. Large houses set in square patterns were constructed between these roads. Unlike previous defensive fortresses, these Trelleborgs were permanently manned with as many as 1,000 soldiers each. This is clear proof that at this point the king had a standing army and the resources to pay for it all, fortresses and soldiers. 
It also indicates that he must have been pretty nervous about losing his throne, since he was willing to foot the bill for such an extensive military force on a permanent basis. At this time in history, it was still common practice only to muster your soldiers when they were needed. This, of course, meant that you risked losing valuable time getting your defense together if or when you were attacked. Remember from the last episode how Håkon the Good of Norway tried to square this particular circle with mixed results. But maybe the costs were too prohibitive in the end, because the Trelleborgs show no serious signs of repairs or maintenance. In other words, they were abandoned fairly soon after they were constructed. Most people who are in a position to make an educated guess will tell you that they were only used somewhere between 5 and 20 years. Beyond various defensive structures and forts of questionable value, Harold Bluetooth is probably best known for his building projects in Yelling on Jutland. When his father, Gorm the Old, passed away, Harold Bluetooth had him interred in an impressive burial mound in Yelling. There had actually been a mound on the site for over 400 years, but Harold built his father's mound on top of the pre-existing one, making it quite impressive. Later, he added an additional mound to the south, called the Southern Mound, presumably for his mother when she died. Burying important people in mounds had actually gone out of fashion by this time, but the custom was revived in the 10th century, possibly as a reaction against Christian customs seeping into Denmark across the border from East Francia. The fact that Harold Bluetooth gave his parents these elaborate, even reactionary, pagan funerals is an indication that he wasn't particularly interested in becoming a Christian in the very beginning of his reign. This only strengthens the hypothesis that he was baptized under duress, or at least that it was a move based on political considerations more than spiritual conviction. But even though he might have converted unwillingly, he seems to have committed to the new religion once he'd been baptized because he also had a church constructed in Yelling between the two mounds, and some scholars even claim that he reburied his father's remains in that church, giving the old pagan anti-Christian King Gorm the Old a Christian burial. In addition, Harold Bluetooth also erected a rather famous runestone in Yelling, called the Yelling Stone. Harold's stone accompanied an older, smaller runestone in Yelling, presumably commissioned by his father Gorm the Old, where he praises Harold's mother, Thyra, calling her Denmark's ornament. Harold Bluetooth's stone is interesting in several ways. First of all, it has three sides, unlike most other runestones. The first side has text on it, and we'll get back to that text in a moment. The second side is covered with images, images depicting two animals, the Midgard serpent from the Old Norse mythology, and another animal that looks a bit like a lion which is conventionally interpreted as a Christian symbol in this context. The third side of the stone shows Jesus on the cross. This is the oldest surviving depiction of Christ in Denmark, and it's such an iconic image that it's reproduced in present-day Danish passports. So if you're curious to know what the yelling Jesus looks like, find a Dane and ask him to whip out his passport for you to inspect. Or you could just Google it, whatever you prefer. What's interesting about this image is that the crucified Jesus isn't hanging with his head, but actually looks at the viewer straight in the face. This has been interpreted by some to indicate that the Danes wouldn't have reacted so well to the idea of a weak and suffering son of God. They expected an image of a triumphant and unaffected Jesus, even during torture. 
but it could also be that whoever carved the image wasn't overly familiar with Christian iconographic convention and just didn't know that Jesus is supposed to hang his head in agony when depicted on the cross. So we probably shouldn't read too much into it. Still, the combination of pagan and Christian imagery on the stone is interesting. The yelling stone is sometimes referred to as Denmark's baptismal certificate because beyond commemorating Harold's parents, the text, just like the image of Jesus implies, claims that Harold Bluetooth Christianized Denmark. The text also states that Harold conquered all of Denmark and Norway. Wait a minute, Norway? Yeah, Norway. Remember how the Eriksons would turn up in Norway ever so often to challenge their uncle Håkon the Good? Who do you think raised the armies and covered their expenses? And if you think Harold Bluetooth chose to pay for his nephew's repeated attempts at violent regime change in Norway out of the goodness of his heart or because he wanted to win the Viking Uncle of the Year award, then you're mistaken. Anyway, we'll get back to Harold Bluetooth's claim that he conquered Norway next time. For now, let's focus on Harold's shenanigans back home in Denmark. In his later years on the throne, one of his main goals was to reclaim the land that he had lost in his failed war against the Germans earlier in his reign. And the German troops who'd invaded Denmark after Harald's failed attack beyond Danevirke were finally driven out of Denmark in the year 983 by an alliance between Harald and his Slavic wife's family. This meant that Harald Bluetooth could retake Hedeby again, which must have been pretty gratifying. The recapture of this important trading hub not to mention the largest town in Denmark, meant a lot to the kingdom as a whole too, not only to Harald personally. But he wouldn't have long to savor the sweet taste of victory. Soon after, Harald was faced with a new threat, a rebellion from within. A few years after the triumphant recapture of Hedeby, news reached Harald Bluetooth that his son Sven had denounced him and raised an army to depose him. Remember Sven? The son who was rejected in favor of Harald's new family. Sven might have been pushed to the sidelines, but he was every bit as ambitious and ruthless as his father the king. According to some sources, Sven also resented that his father had become a Christian, since Sven was himself a firm believer in the old gods, despite having been baptized and having Otto I as his godfather. Sven's rebellion started in 985 or 986, 986 and he didn't have any problems finding people who were willing to join him. There were plenty of chieftains and former petty kings who had lost power and position when Harald Bluetooth united Denmark under his own rule. There were also a lot of disgruntled regular Danes who didn't like the extra taxes they had to pay to finance the construction of Harald's various building projects, such as the expansion of the Danevirke and all the Trelleborgs. To make matters worse, they'd also been forced to work on these megalomanic construction sites. Our old friend, the Danish chronicler Saxo Grammaticus, claimed that Sven used the iconic yelling stone as a rhetorical tool in getting people to join his uprising. He said that King Harald had abused his powers by making proud warriors work like beasts of burden to schlep this enormous rock from the place where it had been found all the way to yelling. Then, adding insult to injury, he'd had the temerity to inscribe it with foreign Christian imagery. Whether it was the yelling stone, the new religion, the various constructions, the taxes, the power grab, or a combination of all of the above, we don't know. But we do know that Sven soon had gathered a large force, threatening Harald Bluetooth's continued reign. 
Not much is known about the rebellion itself, beyond the fact that it seems to have been short. Some of the Trelborgs show traces of fire, fires that could have broken out at this time, indicating attacks or perhaps mutiny. According to one version of events, Harold Bluetooth and his son Sven clashed in, the sea, in a sea battle in Isifjord on the northern coast of Zealand. Harold was wounded and withdrew, possibly to the semi-legendary towns of Jomsborg. I say semi-legendary because archaeologists haven't been able to locate where this town is supposed to have been situated, even though it's assumed to have been somewhere on the southern shores of the Baltic Sea. Wherever he was taken, Harold was so gravely wounded that he died soon after the battle. In a more colorful version of events, there was no battle at all. Instead, Sven's foster father, a guy called Palnatoki, crept up on Harold when he was squatting down to a secluded spot in a, in a forest to do number two. Palnatoki shot the king dead with an arrow that apparently went straight through his body and out through his mouth. Either way, Harold Bluetooth died in the year 985, or possibly 986, and was succeeded by his rebellious son Sven better known to history as Sven Forkbeard because of his curiously shaped facial hair. We'll have plenty to say about Sven Forkbeard in a future episode, but for now, let's just have a quick look at the country that he inherited from his father. When Harold Bluetooth united Denmark, it soon became the dominant state in Scandinavia. It's true that it wasn't particularly large, but it was the most populous country, with a population of approximately half a million people. What gave Denmark its dominating position was its geography. It was a compact country, almost exclusively made up of arable farmland and navigable waterways connecting the various islands in an age when traveling by sea was much quicker and more convenient than traveling over land. The climate was also better than anywhere else in Scandinavia, with relatively mild winters and warm summers, perfect for agriculture. And at this time in history, arable land was the main source of wealth for any country. Furthermore, the location of Denmark was a strategic gold mine, literally. Whoever controlled Denmark also controlled the passages in and out of the Baltic Sea, which translated into a steady revenue in the form of tolls. We can see the importance of this source of income from the fact that the political center of Denmark would gravitate towards the Ersten Strait. The Ersten Toll would become one of Denmark's main revenue streams in centuries to come. But it was a two-edged sword, since it attracted envy from Denmark's increasingly aggressive Swedish neighbors, as well as annoyed the major seafaring nations like England and the Netherlands. That, however, is a tale for another day. I'm going to end today's episode by answering a question from a listener called Magnus. He would like to know how certain we can be that the sources this podcast has been based on so far are reliable, and if they're not, as I kind of suspect Magnus suspects they aren't, why use them at all? The answer to the first part of that question is an unequivocal no. They most certainly are not reliable. The written sources from the Viking Age and the early medieval period in Scandinavia are both incomplete and notoriously untrustworthy. Maybe I don't mention it enough, but please take anything I say in reference to any source with a hefty pinch of salt. This is also why most contemporary academic texts on the Viking Age give the written sources a wide berth. Instead, modern scholars prefer to limit themselves to statements that can be backed up by archaeological evidence. So why do I choose to use these sources, despite the fact that I know that they can't really be trusted? Well, there are three main reasons for, for this. First of all, 
the narrative emerging from these chronicles and sagas was accepted as truth for hundreds of years, so they formed the basis of the Scandinavians' understanding of their own history and society for centuries. To a certain extent, echoes of this largely legendary history is still perceived as what actually happened. The second reason is that the sources are also part of history. They give you an idea how, of how people in the past understood and wrote about the world, and in my opinion, there are insights to be gained from that as well. The third reason is that they're entertaining. Some modern-day academic descriptions of the Viking Age tend to be either super general to avoid providing questionable details, or super local, based exclusively on archaeological finds from a specific site. If I were to remove anything that isn't 100% certain from the show, most episodes would go something like this. Well, then, although maybe also perhaps, in addition, we don't really know. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll tune in next time. Which, of course, none of you would do. My own mother would stop listening if the episodes would sound like that. I'm joking, of course. My mom stopped listening a long time ago. But the point is, I'd rather give you the source-based narrative and add the necessary caveats because it both makes the show more interesting and gives you a feel for what the sources look like. Magnus, thanks for the question. I'll do my best to remind you more frequently when the sources aren't to be taken at face value. And I do hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please consider leaving a favorable review and perhaps a quintet of stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners. Don't forget that if you want to know more about Old Norse mythology, you can buy my book called Viking Mythology. Look for it on Amazon or just Google it. Buying the book is an excellent way to support the podcast and to motivate me to go on producing the show. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If Twitter is your social media platform of choice, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.